Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Ryan Cooper. And I'm Alexi the Greek, welcoming friend of the podcast, political philosopher Brad Evans, uh, professor of political violence and aesthetics at the University of Bath, uh, written many books that everyone should check out, most recently, Atrocity Exhibition, Life in the Age of Total Violence. Um, we've talked about disposable futures, seduction of violence in the age of spectacle. And today, here to discuss Ecce Humanitas, Beholding the Pain of Humanity. Welcome, Brad. Really happy to have you here. No, it's a great uh, pleasure to be with you guys again. And I look forward to our conversation. It's always enthralling. So, Absolutely. Well, th- this was... See, so I've, I've read a number of your works, Brad, and this was... Um, Special. I found it uh, particularly poetic and inspired, and of course, it it directly deals with the poetic and and, and art as, as well. Uh, so maybe before we dive into the argument, the diagnosis, and, and kind of what the the vision you're offering uh, in the book is, maybe talk a bit about. It seems like a long project, a long time coming. This book. How how did uh, how did you come to this particular project, and and uh, what was that what journey like for you? Yeah. Um, so. As I mentioned kind of in the preface to the book, the the idea for the book kind of began, I guess, over 10 years ago. And I was, I think like many people at the time, I was trying to make sense of um, perhaps the, the particular fascination at the time with the work of Giorgio Agamben. And, and there was, I think Agamben was doing a lot of really interesting kind of moves politically in terms of how we could understand violence. And especially opening, I think, some really interesting discussion also and doing a necessary updating of the work of René Girard. And I thought Agamben was doing some really interesting work concerning the, the links between politics, theology, violence, and especially the way in which then he, I think he was doing something which nobody else was kind of doing before in terms of bringing together the biopolitics of Anna, of Foucault and Arendt, who was kind of left out of the story often, um, with, you know, Walter Benjamin. And there was some really interesting stuff going on there. But I still had a whole number of problems with this. But I, I guess I had, like many people, you know, it's, after you read, for instance, Agamben's Remnants of Auschwitz, which, you know, deals with arguably the worst we can think of in terms of the human condition and the question of annihilation, it's, it kind of made me feel like I was kind of, um, it's almost like watching Bill Viola's artwork. You, you know, you can appreciate what's happened, but it kind of leaves you feel a bit immobilized. You, and you kind of think, well, okay, well, where do we go from you, right? So, and, and for me, Agamben never really provided an escape. Agamben, to me, kind of left us, as much as Foucault kind of left us entrapped within power. Um, so I thought, you know, if I wanted to write something on these deeply, you know, difficult subjects, what we might call the intolerability of violence, it needed something a bit more kind of searching and a bit more reaching. And, and through that, I guess I had, you know, I had many crises trying to write the book because it was a kind of a, a case in which to say, well, you know, how do you deal with this problem of extreme violence, first of all, without becoming completely parasitic to it? How, you know, and to me, I find it deeply problematic if we say, well, we're going to engage with extreme forms of violence, but there's no kind of solution to it. But I also, I really, I don't like this narrative that people say, well, just violence is inevitable or violence is an integral part of the right. human condition. And, you know, and all the kind of the natural history of violence, which we map out for all of us. So 
I think I was trying to really, you know, come to terms with that. And ultimately, of course, it all brings you back to ideas of the ancestral, but what we might call the poetic. And for me, that, you know, whilst I find there's a lot of poetry in Agamben's, especially his smaller books when he deals with Dante or, you know, his wonderful little book, The Fire and the Tale and so forth, that wasn't coming through enough forcefully politically enough in his writing. And I think then for me, there was something which needed to happen in terms of, okay, you know, what does it mean to excavate the poetic as a site of potential resistance to the annihilation of the present and the annihilation of history? And I think then for me that that required taking the question of art much more seriously and aesthetics much more seriously. You know, my terminal frustration, especially in the field of political theory, is we often will appropriate art to make a political point, right? So culture becomes of use for us. Yeah, if we can mobilize it to make a political point. And very few political theorists actually listen to artists. So I think that for me then there was something which had to happen as a different conversation. So that's what I guess I was trying to do throughout the book. No, that that makes sense. And and I think, you know, before we get to to kind of, um, I I don't even want to frame it as a solution, but uh, the the vision for for a way of being and seeing that that you offer in in the latter part, uh, I, I think this this point that you're making is is key because the mystery exists in life, the ineffable exists, um, love exists. All these things are um, full, as you say. Life is complete. It's not. It's 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 it's, it's full. And yet, so many theorists, people in power, instrumentalize whether it's art or instrumentalize the victims, as you get into um, for the kind of ends that end up perpetuating the violence. So, so I wonder if we could start with, I think some of the key terms that you've, that you've mapped out, uh, the, the intolerable, the unbearable and the sacrificial and the relationship among those, because I think this can get us into your, your, your diagnosis, um, historically and, and, and today. Well, I guess if we start with, um, maybe the, the last one, the sacrificial, I think, you know, there's, if we want to understand how completely laden our societies are with profound theological claims, all we need to do is constantly look at the language of sacrifice, right? The way in which sacrifice itself, we are constantly told to sacrifice, right? And to me, there is no greater theological term than the sacrificial. Now, you know, and I think if we go back historically then, for me, you talk about the ineffable, right? And there is this, you know, I'm a strong believer that, you know, we have to recognize that there is a beautiful mystery to existence, right? And actually, when people talk about the sacred and religion, I don't think that's the mystery at all. I think that's an attempt to technologize the mystery and, and actually enclose it and give it a definitive truth. Now, now, so for to me, then, if we look at the history, for instance, then, of questions of sacrifice... To me, that is, you know, René Girard has this important point, and, you know, and Girard's work is so influential in terms of the, the understanding of the history of violence, where Girard basically says that every political project begins with a kind of a form of extreme violence, right? And this extreme violence is the original sacrifice. The original sacrifice, for instance, of Christianity is Christ on the cross, right? Or the original sacrifice of modern nation states is the revolution, right? And the heroes, you know. So we have these profound moments in history where the violence is actually necessary. Because, for instance, you know, the, the, the idea, of, for instance, of Christ on the cross, the violence that he suffers, he suffers that violence so no other Christians have to suffer the same. 
And this is what Freud calls the taboo, right? So, so in, in that sense, of course, the, the violence becomes a kind of regulating principle. So in René Girard, you know, we need to, we need the sacrificial. We need the sacred because the sacred is a way of kind of regulating the social order. Now, this theological logic, which is there in Christianity, we see it run right through the modern nation state. Because the modern nation state tells us we need the sacrifice of the soldier so we don't have to die for the nation, right? So it's exactly the same theological logic which was playing out in the logic of Christianity. There is a kind of excessive violence which others will do on our behalf so we don't have to sacrifice, face the violence ourselves. And I think, you know, and so for me then there was always something around, you know, we have this idea that violence is a constant to the human condition. Well, what to me, what makes it a constant is precisely its appeal to the metaphysics of sacrifice. And my question then is, well, why do we need the sacred at all? Right? If the sacred is precisely the way in which violence constantly allows itself to smuggle itself into the social order, then there's, a, there's this idea then, of course, that, you know, you need the sacred in order to have meaning to life, right? And you need the sacrifice in order to have meaning to life. Now, this to me raises profound questions about the entire history of our metaphysics. You know, why is it that we need this idea of sacrifice in order to have a meaningful life? Can't we not conceive of a different type of ineffable, right? Can we not say, well, you know, and I think, you know, there's an interesting point where I think, um, which I, you know, I just give you one example and I can, you can come back into this, is um, the example in the book which I use at the very foundation of, you know, uh, Western literature, which is, in the Oresteia, when Agamemnon sacrifices his daughter, Iphigenia, in order to appease the gods so he can basically go to battle and win the Trojan War. Right? Um, now, this is one of the very first documented cases of feminicide in the history of Western literature. And what, of course, it, it says here is that it's okay to sacrifice something for the greater good. Right? And in that sense, of course, then the sacrificial killing is always associated with the greater good. Now, my point, first of all, is, you know, no daughter, that's not love, right? Because this is done in the name of love. Right, you know, right. the daughter of the sacrifice of the daughter is waged against the love of the people, right? So, you know, to me, there's no narrative of love in this story whatsoever. It's just violence. And, and I think then, you know, if we buy over to this logic, and how many times do you hear people say, you know, if you're sacrificing yourself, you're doing it for the love of your people, the love of, you know, to me, it's just an order of violence. And I, and I think we need to unpack this, I think, historically. Otherwise, we don't really understand the continued ways in which the theological makes a, a demand on the contemporary political order. Yeah, to just to sort of like uh, tie in a little bit with like current events, you know, uh, doing some some news stuff, uh, probably worth uh, mentioning that right now, the United States military is withdrawing from Afghanistan after 20 years of failed occupation. And I think one of the biggest reasons that it lasted so long is that people couldn't admit that all the previous sacrifice of lives and, uh, you know, money and whatnot, uh, was completely pointless. It didn't, you know, it was like, oh, if, 
if we pull out now, we'll have said that all those thousands of soldiers and all those tens of thousands of civilians who died, they died for nothing. And it's true. It's just like a fact. And just yes, facing and that fact is so it's hard. Like an onto- it's like an ontological impossibility. It, it can't be true that they died for nothing. That we can't allow that narrative to exist uh, as, as a narrative. And, 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 and in fact, is invoked particularly with the Afghani women who are the victims, right, who, who we must rescue, right? So. So th- this is this is all around us. You know, well, I think Afghanistan is such an important point, Ryan. You know, and because you know the because one of the things I argued in the book actually is that if we want to understand any particular regime of power, ask what is its sacred object. Now, the point that I argue in the book then is that if the if the sacred object for the modern nation state was the military hero, the sacred object for liberalism was the body of the victim. And what do you do then in, if you turn a victim into a sacred object? What do you do? Well, you commit violence in its name. Right? You carry out things called humanitarian war, just war, which is a profoundly theological concept. Now, your, your point is absolutely right. And if we understand the wars on terror, as I argue in the book, as, as a form of a liberal way of war, which was carried out precisely through the appropriation of the body of the victim, none more so than the woman and the child, The question when we enter into this type of sacred violence is the thing about good old fashioned realist wars, which defined the 20th century was at least they were defined by limits. The thing about liberal way of war is it has no answer to the question of when is too much killing enough. It couldn't answer that question. It was simply until the job was done. But as Biden kind of realized, the job was never going to be done. Right? It was not in the way in which it was waged through violence. So I think, you know, to me, then the, the point I make in the book, you know, I argue that COVID was the, the COVID pandemic was the first crisis of a post-liberal order. And what I mean by that is we're in a world today where we're exhausted by the idea of the victim, right? The idea of the sacred object of the victim, carrying out violence in the name of the victim, which we know is, is so devastating for us if we think about it ethically, because we need to have some idea of the, you know, the suffering faced by people. But if we've exhausted this concept of the victim, to me, Afghanistan is another example of the death of liberalism. It's a liberalism which no longer even believes it can change the world for the better. It's kind of resu- yeah, I think this goes back to Libya. You know, the inv- invasion of Libya was very similar. We bombed the hell out of it with no idea of post-conflict reconstruction. And I think Afghanistan is just basically liberalism saying we're over. We we can't deal with this anymore. And because we can't, you know, we can't uphold this sacred object of the victim and the and the, and the myth through which liberalism was peddling itself about universal rights, peace, security, justice, which completely fell apart with the wars on terror. Yeah, could could you uh, ju- just uh, real quick dig dig into that a little bit? Because I think that would sound confusing to a lot of listeners to be like, you know, if we're in a post-liberal age, you know, you look at Joe Biden, president, he defeated Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. Like he clearly is some kind of avatar of liberalism, at least historically. Uh, I think you would say most of the people in charge of European countries are some kind of liberal. So like how like like what? uh how is your sort of like post-liberalism relate to like the actually existing like political regimes who call themselves liberal? So I think there's two points here. I think, first of all, um, 
to me, you know, there's so many different ways of interpreting, interpreting liberalism. And what I'm talking about here, I guess, is liberal liberalism with a capital L. And that's a liberalism which is understood biopolitically to be related to the global attempts at governing planetary life. So liberalism, which is a liberalism which goes back to the original ideas of Immanuel Kant, but liberalism which has always, since its inception, had an ambition of global governance, global power, global rule. That liberalism is dead. It doesn't exist anymore. That liberalism, I think, the last great liberal president in that sense is Barack Obama. Barack Obama, to me, is the last great liberal president who still bought into this idea that global liberalism was a possibility. Now, I don't think that kind of liberalism occurs. Now, the second point, then, we can kind of say, well, okay, we have these, you know, these presidents such as Joe Biden. You know, Biden seems to me, first of all, completely incapable of doing because I don't think power is there anymore. Power is, you know, and this is one thing which, again, which I argue in the book, that power has long since vacated the modern nation state. And to give you one example of this, just look how completely disposable Donald Trump was in the final days of his presidency. Because power is now elsewhere. And what I talk about in the book, then, where I locate power today is what I've called the global techno-theodicy where power is no longer in the nation state. Not that it was in the 1990s anyway. You know, Manuel Castells and Zygmunt Bauman already wrote about power as being in the global space of flows. But I think power today is overwhelmingly with the technological giants. They can transform the lived conditions on Earth far more than what Joe Biden could ever imagine. And I think to, to kind of locate power with these liberal presidents who seem to have very little control of their own countries, let alone even imagine influence in the wider world now, I think is, you know, to, to, to me, that's what I mean by the death of liberalism. And it's almost like saying the death of Marxism, right? You know, I'm not saying that all Marxists die, and I'm not saying, you know, there's not a liberal running around saying, hang about, what about me? I'm still alive, right? So, but I think as a globally ambitious... But the power of the ideas, uh, that they've been shown them, they've been shown to, to be illusory or false or, or, or lacking in explanatory power, or it's, it's, uh, we, we, they, they've been, uh, it's why, as you point out, Trump had to uh, always draw nostalgia because he was battling dead ideas, right? Um, and, and so I'm curious, though, because I think the capitalist mode of production and, and capitalism and, and sacrifice as being required of the people at the altar of the, the market, the stock market, um, capital accumulation is very much with us. How does that relate to the um, you know, techno-theodicy? Well, I think one of the things that we find in terms of, um, you know, the question is, first of all, why sacrifice? Well, sacrifice basically gives us a form of allegiance, right? So, it, 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 you know, and actually you think about the ways in which, for instance, you know, how does allegiance to the modern nation state manifest itself? There is no greater way of doing that than through narratives of sacrifice, right? You know, you look at the flag, you can't deface the fallen soldier. You know, precisely the narratives which Trump was playing to, right? Because this is, as you say, this is a nostalgic vision of sacrifice which is invested in the nation state. Now, in terms of the sacrificial logics of capitalism today, and as I say, you know, I think capitalism, if we understand capitalism, I think even capitalism over the last 10 years has morphed into something inconceivable. But certainly in the last year, you know, we look at the real winners of the pandemic. And let's be clear, there's real winners. 
And that is the these agency of technological change. So I think if we look at the, the ways in which now that sacrifice plays out, I think, first of all, it's through a sacrificial demand that we all, first of all, buy in fully to the technological conditioning of life. What does it even mean today to say, I'm going to opt out, opt out of technology? Right? It, it, it simply is not an option. Right? We have to give ourselves over. And also, there's, there's another narrative here now. How often do, you know, and I think this comes into the idea of, of fallibility, right? Within the, the narrative of liberalism, there's already this kind of shift towards, you know, recognizing the inherent vulnerability of humans, the vulnerability of subjects. What we're in a situation today is where we're told that the, the fundamental basis for humans is that we can't be trusted to do anything, right? Machines are far more intelligent than us. You know, humans are just simply fallible. If we left our own devices, we're going to destroy the world. So we have to give ourselves over to smarter technologies, things which can govern ourselves for us. And I think that is the real sacrifice we're being asked today, is to give up what it means to be human. Right? Is to basically say that actually other things can save us. You know, and this is, you know, I think first of all we find, you know, there's, there's a whole number of narratives the way this works out. It was already there in the doctrine of resilience, where the doctrine of resilience was kind of saying, well, at the, at the level of it, humans are no different to weeds, right? We just bounce back and we kind of, you know. But in the context of life as information, we're basically just destroying what it means to be human. And I think this is one of the fundamental things of, you know, contemporary sac uh, capitalism depends on the fundamental vulnerabilities and insecurities of subjects. Right? The more vulnerable and insecure we are, the more the conditions of profitability thrive. And I think the more vulnerable, you know, and, and this is where we see it played out particularly on social media, which is, is a terrain which just simply thrives on the hyper arousal of anxiety. It's, you know, capitalism is so parasitic to this type of identity politics as well, which is, you know, which really filters into this. So I think that's where the sacrifice comes then. But what we're sacrificing now in the process is what it actually means to be human. And I think that is quite terrifying where, where that's leading us. So. I wonder how, um, you know, the, your, uh, your discussion of like the, the a post-liberal society and how, you know, the, 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 the global techno, uh, theodicy, um, how how you how you sort of conceptualize uh what china has been doing over the last like 6 months um you know if if listeners aren't aware the 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 uh you know communist government has has launched an attack on its own big tech companies uh tech in the american sense of like the chinese like version of facebook and amazon and um you know E, like the the tech companies sort of sit on top of the actual technological infrastructure, you know, um, because China is still at the same time going all in on manufacturing, you know, like actual objects and and so forth. And they apparently, I mean, it's a, it's a very opaque regime, um, <clears throat> but like the, the 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 party seems quite skeptical of the value of these sort of tech companies and whether they're actually like providing like a net benefit to the to like the country. And also at the same time, you know, like China having, you know, be, being rather clumsy in many ways, but also like like to the, the 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 communist government is capable of doing like large things very quickly, you know, like like shutting down all of Wuhan in a matter of like hours. 
uh, and, you know, building like 20,000 miles of high speed rail over the last, uh, you know, couple of decades. Um, and so, you know, do you see that as being, uh, you know, like, is that part of your sort of like the decay of the nation state? Like, how does that those de- how do those developments sort of fit into your schema? Well, you know, I think, first of all, when we talk about this idea of the techno-theodicy, again, like, like you know, we talk about liberal societies prior to this, it's, it's not a kind of a singular blueprint. And I think, but what, I think what we find certainly, sure. for instance, in, in China and also, for instance, the United States of America, is a fundamental belief that the future is technological in one way or another, right? And, 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 yeah. and actually, it's quite interesting because if you look at, you know, the, the situation in China as opposed to the United States of America and you look at the Chinese tech companies as opposed to China is very explicit about what it's doing. You know, it, it, it might have, you know, suspicions around the tech companies, but it's saying if, if there's a problem with the tech companies, we need to control it as a state, right? So the state itself, yeah. will, and you look at the way it's operating in Hong Kong, right? It's, you know, it's showing the most advanced and sophisticated surveillance technology perhaps known to the world right now, right? So China is well yep. ahead of the game in terms of tech warfare, tech, you know, and this is the big fear for U.S. military strategists that they, they openly admit that China is well ahead of the technological game on so many different levels and I think what's interesting actually is if you think we often think about China as being a, you know if we come at power from the level of technology we often think as China as being a real secretive regime and the United States of America being an open regime China's really open about this techno- te- technology what <laughs> what we have no idea of the power of Google Facebook you know you know I've, I've the number of times I've posted critiques on social media of criticizing technology and it goes nowhere. Now, sometimes I think I'm just being a conspiratorial whack thinking, oh, well, you know, this is just, nobody's really interested in this shit, right? I can post a picture of a cat and everybody's really happy about it, right? But, you know, but you kind of think, well, you know, how do you make sense of this? And the problem is, of course, China's very open that it's full-on surveillance. We know full-on surveillance exists in the West, but we have no idea what it looks like. So I think we are far more censored in terms of the operations of power than what China actually is. And I think that's a really interesting dilemma for us to really confront, really, because I've got no idea what Google's power looks like, really. We have a kind of an insight every now and again, but we have no idea how we're being surveyed, what data they have upon us, what, you know, and what, how that's being used, because it's all wrapped up in the free market and so on. And, but, but we know, of course, again, going back to Donald Trump, I think I find it quite remarkable, you know, nobody in the world is going to say whatever Donald Trump said was a good thing. But the way in which those tech giants almost overnight said the president of the United States of America has no public voice and shut him down, literally, to the point where, you know, I I saw saw a statistic recently and he's looking at the drop off in the simple number of Google searches for Donald Trump. You know, we lived for four years where you couldn't wake up any single morning without Donald Trump occupying your headspace. Now it's almost like a, a cartoon version of Where's Wally, but it's like, where's Donald, right? You can, it doesn't even exist anymore. I don't know. Right? It's kind of, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but tech companies should not have that power. They shouldn't have had the power to get him into the bloody White House in the first place. But they should certainly not have had the power to close a president of the United States of America down as quickly and easily as they did. And is that danger orthogonal to or, or 
tied directly to the danger of violence that comes from sacrificing the sacred. Uh, because I can see how in making us less human, right, in the subject formation effects of, of tech companies and how they want to uh, produce desire and how they want to uh, produce anxiety and, and just control and form human beings uh, and deprive us of, of our um, – of, of love, of the poetic, of, of what it means to be human. I could see that as, as uh, a big danger. Um, but, but yeah, how do you, how do you see that, the, the danger posed by, um, by technology companies in, in terms of, uh, the overall argument about the roots of violence and, and how we have to combat those? I see, I even use the word combat. See, you can't get away from it. <laughs> how you have to respond to, to, uh, the cycle of violence perpetuated. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, I think, you know, one of the things maybe for, you know, again, your listeners who are not too familiar with the terms around poetics and the techno, you know, I think, first of all, it's worth pointing out, you know, that this, this is a debate which goes right back to the history of philosophy. And it's there in Plato, you know, the distinction between the poets and the technocrats, right? And, you know, of course, Plato kicked out the poets, right? Because he didn't trust them. Because he thought that they, they you know, <laughs> because they, they were too far removed from power. You know, the people who produce stuff, the technologists, they are valuable to society. You know, the poets just kind of, you know, distract us with this ineffable shit, right? And kind of, you know, and actually they can bring the society to ruin, right? So I think that this is a tension which goes, you know, historically. And But I think, you know, one of the best thinkers on this was Martin Heidegger. And Heidegger, for all his problems of his politics and actually supporting a regime which was the most technical <laughs> historically, you know, at least recognised, you know, that there's a fundamental tension in human existence between the poetic and the technical. Now, to put this in very basic terms, you know, the idea of the poetic means that we welcome things which are unpredictable in our lives, that we are open to the mystery of existence. We believe that there's something valuable in ideas of love which we can't explain, that, you know, that we should every now and again keep hold of our secrets, not broadcast all our life onto Facebook. And, you know, this is the poetic, you know, that there's something beautiful to the mystery of existence. Now, the technical, of course, is simply, you know, tech, tech, the, the technological is not just simply the stuff we produce. You know, it's, a, as Heidegger says, you know, it's, it's a way of inframing life. It's a, basically a way of basically saying that we can calculate the future, that we can predict the future, that we can control the future. Now, what I do think, you know, I think we also have to be very clear that there's, there's a fundamental difference today. I think, first of all, there's a logic to technology. And this has been the logic which has carried over from the 20th century, which basically is inherently nihilistic, right? We know, for instance, that, you know, we produce technologies. And this is a point which is brilliantly made by Paul Virilio. And he says, we produce technologies and then we ask the ethical consequences, right? So we produce this stuff and then we say, well, actually, do we need it, right? You know, um, and, and, and Virilio says, you know, every technology should be defined by its accident. And we should ask whether we're willing to accept the accidents, right? So, and his point is, we still don't know what a virtual accident looks like, but one's going to happen, right? And I think that that's an important point we need to bear in mind. But I think what's different about technology today as opposed to technology from the 20th century is... Technologies in the 20th century simply needed raw human energy to produce, you know, the, the machinic kind of, you know, mechanized, industrialized approach. Technologies in the 21st century thrive upon the harvesting of human life, human emotion, human 
conditions, right? So, and I think in that sense, then what's different today about the technological is precisely the way in which in order for that technology to work, it has to make us doubt that there is something important to be in human, right? That, you know, so if you listen to the big data people, well, actually all you are is a set of big, you know, you're a complex set of data information, right? You know, being human is, that's a bit of a problem really, right? You know, actually what you need to be is more technologically enabled, right? So, you know, embrace the globally distributed self. And, you know, and I think this to me is where real power is now operating today. It's a logic for power, which is basically saying the human condition and the body and the mind, it's all fallible. And you see this played up with the military. Even the military today will say, well, soldiers, they're a bit of a problem, right? You know, they get things wrong, they kill people. So actually, you know, replace all these soldiers on the ground and let's get drones in the sky, right? So, but you, I'm, I'm sure if you ask people in Afghanistan today, what would they prefer, a drone in the sky or a soldier on the ground? It's a soldier on the ground every single day because at least you can negotiate with someone. At least there's a human to speak to. At least there's, you know, for all the problems of that. And I think that displacement of the human. So even the people who we used to believe were the pinnacle of strength, power, courage, the soldier, even they are now presented as vulnerable, fallible as anything else because humans as a whole need saving from technology. Right. This reminds me so much of, um, you know, a rent in the human condition, even though it's 20th century, but it's, it's homo faber, right? It's, it is, uh, instead of natality and the spontaneity of not knowing what the surprise of being human will, will result in, especially politically when we come together, uh, you, you have the instrumentalizing of people. And, and as you say, this was her fear, uh, this was her fear of the social, of, of, of behavior, uh, of groups rather than the individuality that can shine through and, and really represent the human. And as you say, with, with social media and technology taking advantage of, of the ways that we, we think and, and, and live and feel together, um, homo faber is not just instrumentalizing objects, but turning humans into objects and, and into machines in a way. So that, that is quite dangerous, it seems to me. Um, but maybe we should return then to, to art and, uh, because, it, you know, I really sympathize with some of the problems you were wrestling with in, in this, uh, because it, it seems like, as you say, so much of, uh, the beauty of art and so much of, um, uh, that which people love, that, that what people think of as love can be perverted. Um, even spanking a child, I'm doing this for your own good. You know, the violence comes from, from the idea of what love could be. And, and so maybe we could talk a bit more about the relationship between what you construe as true love and, and how that relates to uh, the proper function of, of art in moving us away from inter- instrumentaliz- instrumentalization and narratives that lead to violence. I, I talked earlier about the, the project being, you know, um, I went through various crises in, in the book. And I think, you know, as, I'm, as I, I openly write in the book that I actually only managed to see the problem that I was engaging with, having met an artist who subsequently become my wife and who taught me so much more about art and aesthetics and about the way in which an artist would actually see the very types of problems I was grappling with, but understood it very differently. So in many senses, this book is, you know, part collaboration with so many conversations I had with her around, and what I understood very clearly then about a different conceptualization of 
ideas of the void, ideas of annihilation, ideas of aesthetics. And I, and I found through those conversations a different way to navigate something which I would never arrived at, at, my, as my, at myself as a political theorist. You know, it took an artist for me to see the aesthetic problem. It's almost like what it takes a poet for you to see the poetry, right? Of course, right? It's, it's pretty bloody self-evident when you think about it. Um, and, and I think, you know, and I think through that, that was important. But also, I think through this, it was also, um, you know, I've always been kind of, you know, troubled, I guess, by this idea initially. And this comes to Anna Arendt in many senses, you know, because um, and, and Arendt's work initially, and but I think I, I was always grappling with it too, too theoretically, right? Because... You know, I was never comfortable with this idea that politics begins with security. Now, we know this is so foundational to enti- the entirety of modernity. You know, the, you know, if you study political theory, you start with Thomas Hobbes. And Hobbes is all sovereignty. And sovereignty gives you, you know, security. Security gives you politics. And we kind of work out the social contract and all. So in other words, you know, there is no politics without security. There's no security without the state, right? This, this is so foundational to modern politics. And, but to me, security makes no sense unless you factor in some prior conception of love. Why would you want security for your neighbours if you hated them? <laughs> you know, so, so it's, a, it's, a, it's a basic thing, right? So, so for me, unless there was a prior conception of love, then sec- love for your family, love for your neighbours, love for... Then why would you want security, right? So, which is something completely, you know, is there in our end theory of natality. It's there in this idea of, you know, why do we want to protect people? Well, because we love them, right? And that's a straightforward argument. You don't need to read you know, Hobbes to make, recognize there's a big hole in his theory there. Um, so for me, that was always the thing. But what, you know, what always struck me as then, you know, okay, if we recognize that, then where does love come into this? Well, theologically, it comes in through sacrifice, right? Because immediately the discourse of security collapses with sacrifice. So I am willing to sacrifice myself or my whatever to protect the ones I love, right? Because this becomes then the narrative through which, you know, the inevitability of violence coming to meet me and me possibly visiting it upon somebody else creates this social order. And what I've realized through, you know, a lived reality of actually for the first time being genuinely in love and actually trying to recognize, you know, trying to bring, I guess, that personal life experience with connecting that to the theories in which we recognize. For me, you know, going back to Iphigenia, you know, the father doesn't love her, right? He doesn't, you know, he sac- no father could sacrifice their daughter and do it out of love, right? This is, that's not love. That's just perverse, right? And for me, the, the, the type of love then which I try to weave through and which I think gives us a, poss- a possible opening to a new type of politics is a love without sacrifice, and what I mean by that is it's a love which is not a contract. And to me, then, you know, what I've learned is if you genuinely love someone, you wouldn't want them to carry the burden of a sacrifice. You know, oh, I've sacrificed my life for you, so you now have to live with the, the guilt of that. And also, you know, if love means anything, it's not a demand. It's not like, well, you know, I'm going to do something because I want something in return. That's a contract. So to me, the very idea of a love without sacrifice is a love which gives everything but asks nothing in return. It's not a sacrifice. If you love someone, it's not a sacrifice. It, 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 it's the most joyous yeah, thing. Yeah, let's talk about let's do, This is good. Brad, let's dig into this because I think this is so counterintuitive for people because, I, you know, th- 
obviously with Iphigenia, it's, it's clearly terrible to, to sacrifice your daughter for yourself. But then people might think, well, what about if you're the selfless one? If you're the selfless one, isn't that love to be selfless? And you're not saying that we shouldn't make commitments, we shouldn't give, we shouldn't... Um, but see, this is where people want to say, but aren't you sacrificing when you when you um, spent all those hours taking care or when you could have been doing something else? But what you're saying is with with love, that doesn't – and here's where the word – we have to talk about it. It doesn't – it doesn't feel like you're sacrificing – like you're giving something up because – because it's a joy to give or, or something. How, how would you articulate this thing that is so counterintuitive to people? Because people think when I give so that my children can do better than I do, you know, when I deprive myself of something, isn't that sacrificial? Mm-hmm. Well, I th- yeah, well, I think, that, first of all, that the point about, you know, you look at the, like the, you know, the sacrifice of Iphigenia, you know, what, you know, what, what, what Agamemnon's basically proposing is what we might call the violence of a suffocating love, right? It's a love which basically says, I've done this for you, so you better be bloody grateful, right, to his people, right? right. You know, it's, it's like, you know, so, you know, I've sacrificed my daughter here, right? And, and I know now Clytemnestra is going to stab me in the back because she's the mother who's pissed off because I've killed the daughter, right? So, but, then, you know, so there's this kind of sense in which then, you know, this idea of sacrifice suffocates, right? Because it's a love which is completely suffocating it's you know we've sacrificed for you so you better be grateful for this now right um and i think you know and and that kind of love is completely fragile right it's based on a contract it's based on a lie it's a lie it's a lie it's a lie yeah it it uses the language of love but really what it's really doing is imposing a power over selfish It, it, it is naturalizing hierarchy because, you know, if you think about sacrifice, it's, it's bound to the sacred. It's a moral demand, right? So I'm, I'm invoking the morality over you because I have given so much to you, right? So I think, but I think, you know, if we think about another kind of love, then, which is we say a love which demands no sacrifice, you know, to me, that's, that's total commitment. I don't see it as, you know, something which demands me to say I'm committed to you. You know it is, right? And because, to me, you couldn't imagine your life any other way. And, and that, to me, you know, it's, that, 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 it's a different to a social contract. You don't need to write it down and say, oh, I, you know, I promise to protect my family, right? Of course you do. Right? And, 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 and I really love what you say about you're burdening the other person with, with living with your sacrifice. So I, I think of this idea that, you know, we're supposed to immiserate ourselves for our kids and they're supposed to immiserate themselves for their kids. At what point does somebody enjoy life <laughs> with that, right? Like, it's, it's just never ending. And, and, um, so, yeah, so I'll, I'll have to have my Yeah, you think about this in terms of, you know, like, you know, um, you know, I've sacrificed, you know, everything for my daughter to put her through private school, right? And she, you know, she decides to become a hairdresser, right? How, how dare you, right? <laughs> but, but, but of course, you know, but that's the suffocation, yes. you know, and, and I think it's a kind of a sense in which that narrative of sacrifice, but we know, you know, but this is where a gambin is, I guess, all, is very important because a gambin, you know, in the book The Kingdom and the Glory and his other works, you know, talks about the way in which this is the birth of political economy, right? Political economy is always saying about, as you mentioned earlier, this sacrifice. But it's always the father sacrificing for the family and I've given up my life for you, you know, and how dare you suddenly become a hairdresser or whatever else, right? And, and you know, and I think there's this kind of, we have to kind of tease out this because it is so violent. This language of sacrifice is literally violent. We know it's literally violent. 
So why are we kind of then continuing to give our allegiance to it? it to me, is you know, really demands a serious conversation. The way in which it fits into society. Is it because true love has no hierarchy, and and what you're describing in terms of sacrifice requires hierarchy, and and is really all about power? Absolutely. You know. So if we understand, you know, the, talk about this idea of the greater good, right? So um, there is no, you know. There is no sacrifice without violence, right? So all, all, and, and, and some kind of relationship to an original violence, right? So, and whether that original violence means we need to sacrifice ourselves to protect in the future. So there's no sacrifice without some relationship to an original violence. This gives rise to a very particular order of morality, which is tied to a very particular idea of metaphysics and a very particular idea of truth, which is precisely a moral claim over human life. So if I was, for instance, to, you know, to say to, to my wife, look, I've sacrificed so much for you, right? Why don't you now do this because I've given, my, given so much to you? What you're basically saying is I've got a moral right over you, right? And that is, is basically the, you know, when we take that out politically, it's precisely through the language of the sacrificial that we can impose the morality over people. How many times do we hear people say, oh, you shouldn't criticize this war because what you're really doing is defacing the soldiers' names who have died? You know, we can think about the criticism, you, you know, Ryan's point earlier about, you know, why not leave Afghanistan? Well, we can't because it's a moral argument because of all these soldiers who've died, even though 10 years ago we knew the mission was fucked. Right, but we but we still carry on, right? Because there's a moral argument about the sacrifice which compels allegiance and compels a power over life. And to me, then, if we talk about a love which is reciprocal, a love without sacrifice, what it does, of course, is it shatters morality and replaces it with ethics, and it demands a kind of a reciprocal reciprocal relationship which is based on. Confidence and trust, and I think that, that you know that's that's a different order of politics. So how, how my my question is, uh, I don't know, immediately comes to mind um, is how you would sort of like try to operationalize this, like politically. Um, you know, it's like we were talking about China. China seems to be like a pretty like an. Uh, uh, implementation of this sort of sacrifice logic that you've you know laid out with stripped of any kind of bullshit it's like you sacrifice all your freedoms we're gonna the state's gonna uh, be reading your emails and your text messages but in return like you know you'll be part of this grand polity there will be like a minimum of economic security and stuff the state will take care of problems like pandemics you know just by forcing you to do like follow instructions um and that's like a kind of a social like a very hobbesian social contract you might say um that is very straightforward in like the way that it operates in the united states in particular uh, and and to some degree in some other western countries that i've seen we don't ha even have that like I was reading a article the other day about how some uh, guy had sent his kid to school uh, after he had tested positive for COVID on purpose, infected like 80 people, like a, just a pure like spite and hate that's just sort of tearing at the social fabric for no reason or for, be you know, they've like been deluded by conspiracy theories or something like that. And so how... Like, how do we start building uh, some kind of, uh, you know, 
reciprocal respect, trust, confidence, or I mean, you know, kind of uh, social ties of any kind in a country that is so uh, messed up, I guess. Yeah. Well, I think I think it's such a. If we look at you know two competing what I call you know operations within this techno theodicy, then right. So we, you know the, the vision of China you present first of all is. I think both both visions you just present are terrifying, right? So let's be clear, right? So, yeah. so, 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 yeah. so, so, so both of them are terrifying. Um, China, we could say, is actually further down the road in terms of its own techno-theodicy, which is, I think China's in, really interesting because, first of all, what China done is it completely shattered the myth that capitalism and liberalism goes hand in hand. Capitalism thrives yeah. on, in authoritarian conditions. We knew that with Pinochet anyway, but, you know, but capitalism really thrives in authoritarian conditions. And, that, and that, that's, you know, that's been shown with China. Now, in the context then of China, just, you know, one of the things you say with China, first of all, is remarkable, the kind of way in which, you know, I, I, when you've seen the, this, the footage of the way they were erecting hospitals, you know, it's just like, well, they're doing this stuff like that. They, building hospitals literally overnight and you kind of go, how does this happen right and you suddenly get a sense of how the egyptians worked building the pyramids okay well this is what it takes right to kind of you know and and you think well okay that's all well and good but the violence that's associated with that is quite you know terrifying and as you say the sacrifice that people are asked to do in terms of give yourself over to this system right because trust us right and that's again based on a hierarchical vision of trust for a regime which should have no trust, right? And I think that that's the first point. The second point, yeah. you know, I, I think you look at the, then the US, which I think actually what's, you know, what's happening in Britain is almost identical to what's happening in the US without the guns, right? So we've kind of mimicking all the logics, all the craziness, but without the guns. And I think what we're trying to deal with now is our societies come into terms with the failure of liberalism, the failures of the wars on terror, the collapse into some kind of theatre of the absurd in terms of identity politics, which, you know, you kind of think, how do we resolve this stuff? You know, and, and to me, I, I, I'm not only kind of dismayed, as you say, by the examples you say on the right, by some of these libertarians who, you know, who are just... You know, like the cosplay bloody Flintstone guys who took, try to storm Capitol Hill, right? You know, it's just a complete theatre of the absurd. And you think, well, how does this exist in our, you know, the 21st century, right? And it's like it's the worst kind of spoof movies you've ever seen. And it's, it's playing out. But also some of the dynamics on the left as well, which I find equally kind of pernicious. The way in which certain elements of the left are just collapsed into theology. You know, the way in which they're unable to recognise any alternative to you know their own hyper moralized positions, the way in which they are constantly parasitic to the identity politics of the time. I think first of all we need to find an alternative politics to China US. But within this system, you know, within this system itself, you know, we need to try to find a way to get beyond identity politics the way it is at the minute. Because to me it's just becoming so toxic. But also it's you know it's not only feeding the machine, the machine is harvesting it now. There's no sure. better thing for the techno-theodicy in the West than the tensions on social media. Nobody would be on Twitter if it wasn't for the, you know, the, the discursive violence, right? It's the only reason to be on there now is to kind of say who's offended who else, right? And, and you kind of think, well, you know, it's completely parasitic to this. I and mean, I think for us as a society, we need to have, you know, internally a much 
better conversation about, you know, the types of engagements we do deal with politically. We certainly don't want to go down this kind of authoritarian route, you know, but we have this kind of authoritarian streaks within our society anyway. But I think we need a much better conversation on the way in which technology today is controlling our lives and is shaping the politics. And the, one of the, the arguments I make in the book, you know, is that, you know, um, technology is now the rule, politics is the exception. And, and I think what we need to really make sense of is how can we develop a better understanding of the future, which to me has to begin with a better conversation with the artists, writers and the poets of history, because they are the ones who you know, have the imagination to do so. Absolutely. I, I think that's key. I, I, I want to ask about democratic theory a little bit and, and love and politics. This is kind of a fraught thing. I, you know, Arendt thinks that, of course... Uh, love is the space of the intimate and the private, and it, and it prevents the possibility of politics in a certain way. Um, and of course, there's the, the old idea of, of civic friendship, as a different kind of love, which Arendt thinks is of respect. Is it that, in your understanding of love, that um, <laughs> because I think of democratic theory, and like Daniel Allen talks about um, sacrifice and, and citizens who have to understand that in a democracy, sometimes. You win, sometimes you lose, and, and there's some give and take. And, and she kind of frames that as, as uh, you know, there's good and bad understandings of sacrifice in terms of how we relate to one another in a, in a polity. Um, it, how do we understand the relationship among people in a polity? Is it that there can't be love because that's the space of, of the, the intimates and the private? Or, or, or can there be love? And, and should we understand that as relating us to each other, orienting us to each other in a way that understands the, the, the give and take or, or the responsibilities, the, the obligations to one another in a way that uh, isn't actually sacrificial, but it's something else. What's the alternative to sacrifice to me? It's an exceptional politics, right? So, and, and I want to pick, I, I think I want to talk about the term, the, the exception, right? Because again, you know, the exception kind of had a bad play with Agamben, right? Because, you know, the politics of the exception is a politics which exists and transgresses the law. We always look at this in the context of tyrants, right? And, and I think, you know, to me, there is, we need to reach for a different theory of the exception. Now, what, when I talk about in a politics of, of love, I think we need to keep hold of the idea, first of all, that love is exceptional. Right? Love is not normal. Love is not... I'm not saying that not all humans are capable of doing it, but we need to keep hold of the idea that love is exceptional. So what I'm saying by this politics of love, then, it's, it's an opening into a politics of the exception. Now, I, I'm not saying, then, that we should say, well, you know, just love everybody, right? This is a 1960s move, which was disastrous, right? You know, this idea that we can just love all your fellow humans and, you know, and we know where that kind of goes, right? It ends up in a, in a kind of nihilism, right, that, 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 that we don't really want to kind of understand. Because we can't love everybody and we don't want to love everybody, right? Because love should be exceptional. It, but, but I think we should use that as the basis for recognising that what, what, you know, the question for me is what might, if we recognize love is exceptional, right? Love is intimate and love is, has this exceptionality to it. And, and the exceptional, you know, we think about exceptional people in history, like people like Walter Benjamin or Kafka or, you know, Paul Klee, Mark Rothko, right? You know, Prince, right? They're, you know, they're exceptional people in history who can point us, you know, 
Well, people were non-hierarchical, right? So I think there is something in this that we need to recognize about the exceptionality of our creativity, the exceptionality of love, and use that without trying to create some new kind of avant-garde kind of bullshit, right? It's about using that as a way to have a new political conversation that we can say, actually, that, you know, we always know the violence of the norm is very problematic, and I think, let's keep hold of the exception. Let's recognize there are exceptional things in life. And let's use that as the basis for rethinking what the future might look like. You know, and I think we're actually going in the opposite direction today. Where we, for instance, you know, we have this kind of impetus today, for instance, where we say, well, there's nothing really exceptional about human life, right? You know, well, you know. Machines can actually feel as well as what you can, right? So, you know, and I, and I think part of the, you know, the historical impetus for, over, for dealing with this, of course, has been the way in which humans have always tried to position themselves at the top of the hierarchical schema, right? So, so, of course, there's an attempt to kind of say, well, actually, we need to bring the human down a peg or two. But to me, the theory of the exception is not a hierarchy at all. It's just about being outside. To me, there's nothing wrong with saying that humans are exceptional, that we are different to dolphins, right? That, that's okay. I don't mind saying that as long as we don't justify massacring dolphins. You know, and, and, yeah, that's right. and yeah. so I, I think that, you know, to, to hold on to this idea that there is an exceptionality to our politics, to our love, to our creativity, you know, this idea that, you know, monkey, this is something which, my, you know, me and my wife are talking a lot about at the minute on a current project about, you know, that, you know, it starts off with monkeys can be artists and now machines can be artists, right? No, right? Art is the, you know, the sole preserve of humans. We need intention. We need to believe that we can change the world for the better. You know, being human matters. And I think this to me is, you know, unless we can carve out a new politics there to me, I think that we're in real danger of just losing sight of what it means. And, you know, it's all, as you say, it's all there in our, our rents, the human condition. You know, that, that can be the start point for rethinking politics in the 21st century. And there's an important point which Arendt makes in that book, you know, when she talks about, um, Auschwitz, and when she says, you know, what is it about Auschwitz that was singularly unique? And she said, it's the ghastly experiment of removing spontaneity as part of the human condition. You know, there is no more spontaneous act than love, right? That, you know, that, that this idea that, you, you know, if you could plan it and program it, know when it was going to happen, it would never occur, right? So I think there's something exceptional and that reach, so I think the, the opposite of, of, you know, um, and I think that the opposite of sacrifice is the exception, is the exceptional and I think, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could say, let's aim for an exceptional politics, right? You know, what does an exceptional politics look like? Which is non-hierarchical, based on a love without sacrifice. Now, you know what we're trying to do here is undo two thousand years of Western history. So this is this is not a you know. Is that all? Yes. yes. <laughs> well, yeah, go even further. So it's not it's not going to happen overnight, and I'm sure we'll probably annihilate ourselves before we get there. But it's a nice ambition. So. You have a um, <clears throat> uh, just w- w- uh, one thing I wanted to make sure that we mentioned. Um, you know, you 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 talk a lot about like. A, a kind of a new aesthetics and a new kind of relationship to violence that isn't involved with like sacrifice and sort of helplessly legitimizing the idea of violence. You call it, I believe, transgressive witnessing. So can you explain what that means and how it sort of functions or how ideally it would function? Mm-hmm. Well, I think if we look, you know, I guess the question is, you know, what is the political function of art? Right? Now, to, to my mind, actually, 
politics is much more of an art than a social science. And what I mean by that is politics is all about, you know, first of all, you know, all politics is based on certain ideas of myth, right? But more than that, politics is all about imagining the future, right? Without any some narrative of the future, politics is dead, right? So, so I think then, so politics is, is an art form. It's, it's a way of, you know, and, you know, it's far better being in a room full of artists who are talking about political ideas than in a room full of social scientists who can sometimes <laughs> just bore you to tears, right, with, with their statistical analysis. And you kind of go, where's the human in all this? <laughs> you know, but, so I think politics is not more than social. But I think, what is the political function of art? And I think, you know, um, to me, it is precisely this idea of what I call transgressive witnessing. And... We can tend to have this kind of, you know, this really reductive and terrible understanding of art where if art is political, it simply documents history, right? So, and the obvious example, you know, the, the, the argument I make in the book, for instance, of um, Goya's Disasters of War, you know, I think, and the point I make is that, you know, if Nietzsche declares the death of God, God, Goya paints it, right? Goya is the first to paint the death of God. You know, Goya's disasters of war documents the birth of modernity, right? This, you know, you, you can think of that, the famous um, image from the disasters of war with the three carcasses who are basically suspended on the tree and there's a head and there's a body upside down and so forth. And this is the most famous from the disasters of war. Basically, the tree replaces the cross. And the tree, and this is basically a violence which has no gravity. It's a, you know, everything Goya paints is down to earth, right? It's, it's the violence just because we can do it, right? It's not violence which needs to carry out in the name of some god. It's a violence because humans believe they are gods, right? Now, but what Goya, of course, is doing with these pictures, these were the photographs of their times. Goya is not just simply saying, you know, I'm just going to document what I'm literally seeing outside my window, I'm trying to do this because I don't want war like this to happen again, right? So, so, so to me, you know, the ideas of great art, if you want to call it great art, um, is all about steering the future in a different direction. It's not just about documenting the atrocities of the past. You know, and I think, you know, in that sense, I think the great art always comes from the future. It always poses questions from the future. And I, I think, you know, the... To me, if anybody you know, ever questions the, the political importance of the arts, just think of the degenerate art exhibition, you know, under Nazi Germany. And the way in which particularly abstract art becomes so powerful because it can ask questions that we are yet to even formulate. You know, Hitler feared abstract art for a very clear reason. Because it wasn't because it was just childish scrolls and corrupting the mind of German youths, because it didn't live up to the ideal representation of, you know, the royal arts as Hitler saw it. You know, the reason why he feared Paul Klee so much is because he knew his Twittering machine was one of the best critiques of a technocratic society. The ways in which it can already, within art, we can already prophesize about the future. And there's a way in which, you know, it's easy to condemn, you know, break down an argument very quickly but a vision is different, you know, and I think that to me then where art becomes so powerful is because it does give us a transgressive witnessing and a transgressive witnessing, which is says, yes, this is the atrocity of history, but also this is the ways in which we might rethink the future. And sometimes the more abstract the art, the better, you know, and I talk about it a lot in the book when me and my wife went to the Tate Modern and we went to the Rothko rooms, you know. 
Rothko paints the abyss better than anybody. And, and I think if you stare at the work, and the thing about art, I think this is an important point as well, which is different to think about the technology of the times. We live in an age where technology promises us instant solutions. And yet again, we have Afghanistan 20 years later, and we know we still can't resolve it, right? And I think the thing which art demands is a different temporality. It demands much more sustained reflection. And I think this perhaps is another thing in, if we talk about a politics of love, a politics of the exception, a politics of, of art. If we need anything today, it's to slow things down. It's to kind of say, well, actually, let's really get a grip on where we're at here. You know, we really need to make sense of what is this that we're buying ourselves into here. Because, you know, walking across a bridge where I lived yesterday, you know, and all of a sudden you're... Drone cameras, they're just, they're just everywhere now, you know, you, you, you see these things and you kind of think, well, how did this become normal? You know, where we having these technologies, we have no idea of what they're being used for. We know it's only a matter of time before they have terroristic uses. And we still are just rushing head on into this future, which is promising us some kind of technological salvation. And I think if we needed politics today, it's the slowing down. And that's where I think the transgressive witnessing comes in, because it demands much more sustained reflection. And I think we can take this back, you know, if I want to talk about Afghanistan. Um, you know, we're in this age of, you know, this imminent politics, an age of imminent politics. Go back to, you know, 9-11, the start of 9-11, right? 14 days later, you know, Tony Blair says, this is the day the world changes forever. He says that the day after 9-11. 14 days later, we go to war, right? If it was the day the world changed forever, maybe we should sit back and reflect on it a bit more, right? You know, let's, let's consider the consequences of this. And I think what we've encountered certainly, you know, more than anything over the last year is the speeding up of politics beyond all conceivable measure. And I think that we need to really slow things down. And that's interesting because if all politics have to be about the future, what you're suggesting is our previous politics were about a race to the future and, and technology is about speeding up and getting there fast as if it's a teleological thing where, where the faster we go, the, the, the better we arrive at progress. And you want us to, to slow down into our, into our humanities and, and probably in an embodied way as well. Um, I, I wonder as a practical matter, this might sound silly, but you know, in the United States, the Democratic Socialists of America are, are perhaps the, the, the biggest ascendant group, um, of, especially of young people politically, people who are becoming conscious uh, and, and being aware of politics in a way that is beyond their everyday life, although they're realizing politics is also the everyday. Uh, insofar as art is often the province of those with money or those with a certain education and, and politics such as the level of organizing like the DSA is, is a way for people to be brought into awareness that they otherwise don't get because they don't have access to certain education. They don't have access to, to museums as often as they should. They don't have the time. Um, but the DSA and other reading groups uh, will force them to take time to educate themselves in certain ways about um, their, the realities all around them. Would you suggest then that like a DSA meeting and a DSA agenda shouldn't just be about mutual aid and fighting for Medicare for all, but it actually should also be about educating um, the, the poetic and about teaching the things you're talking about, about transgressive witnessing and so forth? Uh, literally, as a practical thing, should this be the province of those types of organizations? And, and should politics, um, you know, on this level be aware that this is just as urgent and important as the mutual aid projects and so forth? Yeah, I, so I think, you know, the, the first of all, the point about the art, I think we need to kind of differentiate between art and the art world, 
which I think are two very different things, right? Sure. And, sure. Uh, you know, the, and, and the art world is disastrous to art. We, we, we kind of know this, right? And, and, and this, this preserve, actually, of art. And, and again, this is something, you know, which um, I used to have this idea where I believed, um, first of all, that art galleries should be full of kids. And actually that, you know, kids should have this experience of art and so on. I'm less certain of that today, actually. Every time I've taken my daughter to an art gallery, she hates it. I'm kind of wielding her around and she's like, well, what, why am I here? What, what am I, why am I being exposed? In Philly, we've, we've got the Please Touch Museum. I think kids love it. She might enjoy that a bit yeah, more. Yeah, but, 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 but it only appeals as long as it has some kind of interactivity, right? A digital interactivity, which to me, again, is very problematic, right? So, and I also think we're, we're in an age today, first of all, digitally, with the, the oversaturation of everything, right? And I don't necessarily know if it's a good thing for kids to have seen every single work of art in the world before going into a gallery and actually seeing the original. I think that deprives them of something. Now, of course, we can say, well, this is elitist because only the wealthy people can go to Venice and see this picture, right? So there's there's something in that. But, but I think, you know, you, you know yourself if you see a picture of a Mark Rothko painting as opposed to being sat in a gallery with the original, there's, there's no comparison, right? So, so I think actually, we again, we're depriving people somehow of the exceptionality of an encounter. Now, in terms of then this kind of sp- slowing things down, you know, one of the problems we know we've had historically is access to resources, right? So access to, and this was always one of the kind of, you know, I grew up in a deprived valley of South Wales where the local library, you know, had a handful of politics books. There was, there was nothing there, right? So, and of course we can say, well, the, the shift in terms of the digitalization of, you know, um, books and all this kind of stuff is, this is a positive move because it gives accessibility to everybody. And yet, if I think about it now, I don't necessarily know if it's a better thing or not. Because we have a student communities today where... The biggest problem I have is to get students to read anything, right? Because, right. you know, sure. yeah. you know I, I think, you know, when I was at university, I, if I wanted a book and I put in for an interlibrary loan, I even remember, you know, I wanted to read Hayek's Road to Serfdom, right? And, you know, we know it's a terrifying book. A masochist. You were a masochist back then, eh? Yeah, completely, right? <laughs> and, you know, and, and it's kind of like, a, yeah, I almost wonder what, what with Nail and I might look like if he's stuck in Hayek. But there's... um. I think that you have this, so I, but I waited for the book. And I remember waiting for like, you know, it must be like a month and this book finally arrives. And you were damn sure I'd read it from beginning to end, right? Even though it infuriated me, I, you know, I, 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 I kind of, there was something about it that you kind of said, well, actually, I took time to digest it. I, I, I appreciated the time that this thing arrived. And now, you know, with everything imminent, we just want imminent sound bites. You know, we've seen this in the advent of the pandemic. It's like, oh, well, you know, just create small 15-minute talks for students because they can't take an hour online, you know. And it's like, well, I'm just producing a Ted bloody talk now, right? You know, because we want these short snippets. Oh, don't give too much information to read, you know. Can you just make it digestible, you know? Even to the point where my own university won't buy a physical copy of my book. They'd only buy a digital version now. Right, so we're in this kind of (laughs) so there's this kind of bizarre world where information is imminent. Information has to be immediately accessible, which means nobody bloody reads anything. And I think you know, and I think this is a real problem if we're talking about. It's okay if we want kind of the latest news, and I want to read the latest story about why PSG have spent so much bloody money on Messi. Right? Okay, I want that imminent news, and I want it digestible. 
But, and there's some things which, are, you know, which work that way. But when we're dealing with deep philosophical issues about the human condition and how we can you know, reconstruct the politics around that, we need to take time. And, and I'm often reminded here about, you know, um, and we think about how this connects, you know, to politics. Um, you know, I, I, when I was doing my PhD, you know, my PhD was on nonviolence and I spent quite a bit of time in Chiapas with the Zapatistas. And, you know, there's this kind of lauding of the Zapatistas as being this kind of internet revolution and this kind of stuff where, you know, first of all, Subcommandante Marcos wasn't on Twitter, right? Kind of, you know, waging some Twitter war with someone, right? But also not only that, their politics recognises for indigenous people that things take time. You know, if you want to have a community politics, you can't resolve complex matters overnight, right? You know, which is completely counterintuitive to the contemporary politics, which is we want immediate solutions to the problems. Now, we can say, of course, there are very pressing problems like climate change and so on, which do demand very clear responses from us. But we still need time to reflect on these things. And I think, you know, otherwise we're in this imminent age of just shooting everybody down, which I think is becoming also very, you know, pernicious and disastrous politically. Yeah, I, uh, I, I definitely identify, the, I, I agree with the, the kind of, like, I don't know what you call it, a paradox of choice, or it's like going to a buffet, you know, and it's like, I can't decide what I want, so I'm going to pile my plate high and with, you know, 17 different servings of everything, and then I can barely even sample it. Um, this is why I like airplanes, by the way. It's like the only time when I have to sit down for hours and I can't connect the internet. And so I'll just sit and read an entire book from start to finish. It's like, And then they had to like, go and ruin that by putting the internet on the airplane. Yeah. Yeah, but I don't, I, I refuse to pay for it. I'm not going, I'm not showing the money out. Um, but yeah, it seems like that's something, you know, it's like that takes social organization, you know, like, like the reading, reading a, a book club, you know, where it's like, okay, I, I have to finish this and I have to have something to say about it, you know, and like, I'm going to pick out a book that I actually want to read. And so it's sort of like beat myself into, into like actually, you know, considering it and reading it. Um, and you're responsible to others. It helps to have the community that that kind of enforces the discipline of of the slowness and the attention and so forth. But uh, you know, Brad, neoliberalism has destroyed education, right? By instrumentalizing everything and and the purpose of education. Of course, they don't read because I don't know. Do I need to read in order to get the job that I think I'm going to get by having this major and that major? And and so, and so you know, of course, we we get back to the, the the very structures that undermine our ability to have time or to to subject the subject formation that tells us that leisure matters and that and that it's okay uh, to, to, to want to become an artist or to, to, to spend time with poetry um, so so now we're back to these these forces uh, that that's you know it's, it's the chicken and the egg how, how do we um, you know how, how do we become the people that value the things uh, when we're being formed by those structures that don't right no I, I think it, you know there's no coincidence today right you know in terms of again one of the big we, the very big casualties of COVID, the COVID pandemic, and the pandemic has led to this vapid acceleration of the technologization of life. 
It's no coincidence that within that there's been, you know, a devastation of the humanities and the arts more generally, right? I don't think this is, you know, the one thing, first of all, all these big tech giants, they don't buy art, right? They're not interested in it, right? So the Bezoses or the Musks, they've got no interest in investing in the arts. They've got no interest in buying art. It doesn't interest them, right? Because for them, technology is art, right? So I think, so I think that in itself is, you know, is a dangerous kind of world within. But we know, you know, the, the one, the big strength about the humanities, why study English literature, or why study poetry, or why study, you know, even history, you know, is the, or, or art history, is because it, it demands, again, a different temporality. The reason why the STEM sciences are so powerful is not only because, of course, it easily fits in with the instrumentalization of, techn- of education. The STEM sciences are geared towards the technological order of things. And that's a technical logical order of things, which, you know, which again, Ryan, you pointed out, it's all about the speeding up of things. And you, back to your point then, you know, Alexis, it's about, you know, the speeding up of, you know, connectivity in the, in the context of education. And we have these, these two fetishized terms today, which dominate the landscape. One's speed and one's connectivity, right? And both of them are given as an unequivocal good, right? The more speed we have, the better things are. Why? You know, surely history teaches us the opposite, right? You know, and also this other idea that the more technologically connected we are, the better we are. I don't buy that either. You know, just because we're connected doesn't mean anything. All it means is that we have some technological ability to, you know, and I think we need to kind of get out of this language completely. We need not just to, to redefine love properly, but connection is like lovemaking should be slow. And that's true connection. In fact, you don't want technology involved. Get the, put the phone away, put the, put the, put the devices away. And in fact, slow, attentive lovemaking is the place where you can't force an erection that has to happen spontaneously. <laughs> and, and this, I think, captures all the technology and the reason that all, all these Viagra ads are so popular. I think this is a perfect way to sum up the problems of today. So, uh, I, don't know, I know we've kept you a long time, Brad, but I, I wanted to, 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 to leave us with that and anything else you'd, you'd want to end with. It's been a, a pleasure talking with you. Yeah. No, no, I, I guess maybe I was just talking about um, Bezos and then the erectile invariably came in on his rocket that's <laughs> yeah. going with speed to outer space. <laughs> it's a little on the nose, a little on the nose, yeah, right? Okay. No, 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 but I think, yeah. you know, I think these are all, you know, I, I appreciate that a lot of them are very kind of complex issues, but I think it's, it's important that we start having these conversations because, you know, to me, there's, there's something very pernicious happening at a very accelerating rate in the world today now. And, you know, to me, you know, there's this kind of moment in history we kind of say, well, you know, Nietzsche, when he says, you know, God is dead and we have killed him, that, that tends to be the often quoted kind of, you know, thing about... Um, but Nietzsche goes on to say, you know, well, what sacred games will we now have to invent for ourselves? And if you read the full passage when Nietzsche declares the death of God, he's terrified by it he's because he knows out, yeah. what's going to come when humans put themselves in the place of God. Nietzsche hated Christianity, but he feared what was going to come after it. I've written extensively criticizing liberalism because I thought liberalism was a tyrannical project. But what could replace it promises to be much worse. And the age of a techno-theodicy, which visions are already there in China, we see the, you know, the way in which the authoritarian practices of people, you know, like Musk and everybody else who don't give a damn about people, right? They, you know, and the ways in which these people offer a technocratic vision of the world, this could lead us into something, you know, the, the, the real nihilism to me is that we've, 
prophesized this stuff so much in, in popular culture. You know, The Matrix, all these films, you know, we always prophesize about our technological ruination, and yet still we do it. <laughs> and it's kind of like, well, you know, surely we have somebody that has to step back and go on about, right? <laughs> well, what's going and, on and, here? And unfortunately, in the U.S., the, the, the big movement against big tech comes from the Trump supporters, right? They're, they're, so the new fascisms are the alternative that's most present. Yeah, I think that's the problem, right? Because, and I think this is perhaps you know where we can end today is that politics has never simply been two, right? And politics is often dominated by the two camps which shout, shout the loudest. And on the one hand, you say you have the, the the Trump libertarians who seem to be the anti-technologists. Some of them have a point, right, in terms of their worries about technology and, you know, um, or the fact that they just simply recognize that the state's not going to bail them out, so they want to go back to bloody work, right, because they want a job. And I think, you know, and on the other side, we have, you know, the, the, this, this leftist politics, which can be very pernicious in terms of the way in which it's kind of operating. And I think, you know, but have very real concerns about, you know, people dying of bloody COVID, right? So I think, you know, so to me, then... What we need to do is maybe work through a different politics. Yes, it's okay to critique the technology, but it's okay to feel responsible to your fellow citizens as well. And somewhere in between this seems to me to be a perfectly commonsensical politics, although the common sense is always a problem as well. So. Great. Well, uh, Brad Evans, the book is called uh, Ece Humanitas, uh, Behold, Beholding the Pain of Humanity. Uh, we'll link it in the, uh, the show notes. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Always a pleasure, guys. Thanks so much, Brad. Thanks for listening, everybody. We will see you in the next episode.